Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. On Friday last week, Silicon Valley Bank, the 16th biggest bank in the United States, succumbed to a bank run and was declared insolvent. With markets gripped by fear, the US authorities stepped in on Sunday night to guarantee customer deposits and backstop the financial system. I want to know why SVB collapsed, what happens next, and if the problem was contained to just this one bank. And in today's dumb question of the week, what is the difference between a bailout and a bail-in? Okay, let's get into it. So the weird thing with being a financial podcaster is that there's kind of perverse incentives at play. We almost hope for some sort of horror story, don't we, Roman, to have something to talk about? Because sometimes we sit here like, does anyone want to hear about bonds again? (laughs) Everybody wants to hear about bonds now. Yeah, they do. Because we haven't got that problem this week. Everyone was like, is the world going to collapse? Probably not. But let's talk about it anyway. It's pretty shocking what's happened. And it's not just podcasters that benefit from these falls in stocks. It's also investors. Because if you're going to be investing, when do you want to buy stocks? Well, when they're cheap. So I think these opportunities are actually a good thing. Only you could look at a bank run and insolvent banks as, well, it's actually a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) But you've got to have an optimistic mindset. And I think that's what really works in the long run, is to look at these opportunities and always step back and say, what does it mean for the long term? Because that's how you're going to win. So for some context, it's been a grand total of 868 days since a bank last failed in the United States, which is actually apparently closest to the longest stretch on record. But here we are. And a pretty big bank, not a huge bank, but a pretty big bank. And it's interesting that it's a bank that's important in its own way. So if you're a tech company in the United States, this was the kind of go-to bank where you'd go for loans, you'd go to it for banking services, And in the UK as well, if you had difficulty getting a bank account with your standard banks, you'd go for Silicon Valley Bank UK. Yeah, I heard it described as this was a very normal bank run on a very unusual bank. Which had very special circumstances, which meant that its deposits got eroded over time. So I think there's some specific problems with this bank, but there are more general problems, as we'll discuss later, which could be common to other banks. Okay, so let's step back. And to begin with, what was Silicon Valley Bank, SVB? So it hasn't existed that long. It was only set up in the 80s, 1983. And it was specifically crafted to tailor its services to the tech sector in Silicon Valley. And I read that, interestingly, the whole idea for it was conceived over a poker game between the two founders, which I like from a dramatic <laughs> narrative point of view. <laughs> like, if and when they make the film, that's a nice opening scene, isn't it? You, know, you can bet there's going to be a documentary on Netflix. So what was special about the early 80s then? You said it was established in 1983. Well, remember when the internet really started? I still remember telling my uncle about email and he said, look, but who pays for it? You know, how does email work? Why would I want to do that rather than write a letter? I still can't answer those questions. (laughs) (laughs) And that was in the early 80s. So I think, you know, it's easy to forget how different things were in those days and how quickly things have changed. That huge boom in the technology sector pretty much came at the end of the last century. So it was a pretty slow start for the tech sector with a lot of false starts and not a huge set of success stories to start with. And this startup culture was, as we now all know, concentrated in Silicon Valley on the west coast of America. 
And interestingly, at the same time, banking regulations in the US were kind of being revised. And there was actually a boom in startup banks. So in the year SVB was founded, it was just one of 72 new banks launched in California that year. And the number of banks in the US always staggers me. It's over 4,000 banks, which are secured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Scheme, the FDIC. 4,000 banks? 4,000. And so I just remember at the time of the financial crisis, it was almost like, you know, watching popcorn go off as each of these banks defaulted, defaulted, defaulted. (laughs) But how many banks do you need? The thing is, in America, you have all these regional banks as well which in the UK we just don't tend to have. I mean, we're the size of like one state, right? And the size of one company, yeah. And if we look at Silicon Valley Bank, it grew quite slowly and it did have to go through a few sticky patches along the way. So it survived the real estate bust in California in 1992. And then it also obviously had to go through the dot-com bubble and as a big lender to startup tech companies, it was obviously impacted. And it actually kind of underwent a bit of a bank run at that time. So its deposits fell from four and a half billion dollars to three point four billion dollars. But that time it came through. Well, maybe that time it was also smaller. So at the time, its entire deposit base was around four billion, five billion. So pretty small in comparison to today. It was small and also interest rates weren't being whacked up. True. Yeah. But you're right that it was a small bank back then in the dot com era. But now it's, you know, not so small. It's the 16th biggest, which in a country with 4,000 odd banks puts it in the top leagues, doesn't it? Yeah, that's true. And it's also very concentrated in one sector in one country. So it doesn't have a very diversified deposit base, didn't have. And that was a problem as it turned out. Yeah. So SVB claimed that it banked nearly half of all US venture backed tech and healthcare startups. So it was kind of dominant in that industry. Completely dominant. And of course, these people tend to behave in the same way. They do have a kind of herd mentality. That's true of any sector. But I think in tech, it's also true. Look, if people start talking to each other about removing their deposits, then that can very rapidly turn into an avalanche. I mean, I think the important thing to remember is that no bank is immune to a bank run if it gets started. But the question is, how does it get started, right? And I think regulators now force banks to go through something called a stress test where you say, well, what happens if 10% of your loans go bad or 50% of your loans go bad? And the bigger the bank, the more systemically important it is, the more stringent the stress tests it has to pass. But no bank would pass a stress test where half of your deposits disappear. That would just be unsurvivable for almost any bank. It really depends on how the bank's funded. So if you look at the liability side of the balance sheet, Sometimes deposits make up a large proportion of the funding, and that was particularly true of SVB. And we say liability side, because remember, deposits are a way of funding the bank. It's capital that the bank has, but it's also something that the bank owes to its customers. Like they can withdraw the money and the bank has to pay them. And they call them call deposits because they can be withdrawn by the customer at any time. So it's risky from the point of view of the bank. And that's also why they tend to dissuade customers from having too much of a deposit because they give a fairly low interest rate. But just to explain to people, if they're not familiar with how balance sheets work, you've got assets, which is the stuff that you buy to generate income for the company and profits. And then you've got liabilities, which is how you paid for them. So that would be things like equity. So, you know, the equity shareholders would be part of the liability side. And that's the loss absorbing bit of the liabilities. So if the assets shrink, 
the equity falls to compensate. So that's the loss absorbing bit of the liabilities. Welcome to 2022. <laughs> <laughs> and if it goes below zero, the equity, well, then you're bankrupt. So that's the way it works. And on the liability side, you also have things like corporate bonds. If you've issued corporate bonds or if you've got a loan from a bank, you know, that'll be a liability. And those are the people you have to pay back. Yeah. The liabilities is how you're funding yourself. And in the case of banks, it's often deposits from customers. Yeah. And in the case of SVB Bank, it's especially true that it was deposits from customers. Like that was almost all of its funding, I believe. And that's why it was so risky that they were all from the same sector. And if something happened to that sector, the tech sector, <laughs> and they all started pulling their money at the same time, yeah, bad things might happen. So to give some context, during the pandemic, deposits at Silicon Valley Bank actually surged. You know, there was so much money flooding into the tech sector as we had that pandemania rally that deposits went from around $100 billion to $200 billion. And it kind of peaked, you know, at the end of 2021, as so much did. And then the deposits started going down from 200 billion to around 173 billion at the end of December 2022, and then 165 billion by February 2023. So there's this kind of slow pull down of deposits, but then it really accelerated over the last week, didn't it? And I actually dug through all of the results numbers for each quarter going back to 2020. You see those deposits ramp up to 400 billion if you include the off balance sheet client investment funds. And then gradually it starts to plummet. Now, I don't know where this fact comes from, so I can't corroborate it. But on Thursday, we had a huge outflow of deposits. It was something like $40 billion. And that was a large percentage of the total deposits for the bank. Yeah, more than a quarter of deposits trying to be pulled in a day. Like you said, there's pretty much no bank that can survive that scale of run. Now, what triggered that? Well, this is from Reuters where they say that some SVB clients pull their money on the advice of venture capital firms such as Peter Thiel's Future Fund. Yeah, so I think you have a dynamic here where these venture capital firms obviously put seed capital into a lots of small startup companies, and they're kind of like their daddy in a way. And if they yeah. say, get your money out of a bank, <laughs> all the startups are going to do the same thing at the same time. And it's just like a gating of a fund in a sense, because whoever gets out first doesn't have to you know, suffer a loss potentially. So once it starts, the stampede is almost unstoppable. And so at the close of business on March the 9th last week, Silicon Valley Bank said it had a negative cash balance of $958 million and was insolvent. It's quite sad in a way. Yeah, I tried to say it in the most sort of newsreadery way I could. <laughs> and at that point, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation steps in as receiver and sort of takes over the bank or what's left of it. Now, but the question here is, well, why was there a run on the bank? We say, okay, venture capital firms may have sort of pushed all their companies to run at the same time, but why did they do that? And I think it's interesting what went on behind the scenes here. So we said there was this big run-up of deposits during the pandemic. And then they had all this cash, all this excess liquidity at the bank. And they had to do something with that, didn't they? So what do you do? You've got this flood of venture capital cash coming to you via these startups. And your balance sheet's getting bigger and bigger on the liability side. What are you going to do with it? Well, they actually did the right thing, kind of, which is to put the money into something safe, which is US Treasuries. But... They went for very long duration US Treasuries. So the average duration of their portfolio by the fourth quarter of 2022 was around six or seven years, which isn't huge, but that's fairly chunky duration. Now, why is that risky? 
as regular listeners will know, if interest rates go up and you've got long duration, you suffer a loss on those bonds. And the bigger the duration, the bigger the loss. And I think Silicon Valley Bank were kind of aware of this risk. So there's a quote from their CEO, Gregory Becker, at the start of this year, where he said, in 2021, we sat back and said valuations and the amount of money being raised, and this is by venture capital firms, is clearly at epic levels. So we looked at that and were more cautious. So they kind of were aware that they didn't want to gamble this money because they might have to start paying it back to depositors as they withdrew it. Like you say, they went for these supposedly safe assets, US treasuries, which when you look at the capital of a bank, it actually has a zero risk weighting, doesn't it? Yeah. So just to explain how that works, at the last crisis, so this was the global financial crisis, the problem was low quality assets. So loans, which was subprime. That was the toxic stuff on bank balance sheets, which ultimately caused the problem. But treasuries are not subprime. They're loans to the US government. Which is the point, right? Which is why the regulators tried to create an incentive for banks to buy safe stuff. How can you do that? Well, you can say, look, if we look at the assets on your balance sheet, we're going to apply a risk weighting to your assets. And if it's an equity, it's got a really high risk weighting. If it's, you know, an option on some crazy stock, that'll have a high risk weighting. If it's crypto, it'll have a high risk weighting, of course. But if it's a treasury, zero. It has zero risk weighting. In other words, it's invisible in terms of asset risk from the point of view of the regulator. Which is interesting because, okay, maybe it has zero credit risk. The US government, touch wood, is not going to default, but we'll see later this year. <laughs> but it does have interest rate risk, though, especially these long duration ones. <laughs> A lot in this case, yeah. So I think as long as you hold these assets to maturity, not a problem. And the same is true if you held single bonds during this big bond sell-off. As long as you were willing to hold it to maturity, you don't care because you'll get your 100 back. It's not like the US government's going to default. But if something happens en route, which means you have to sell those assets, well, you're going to crystallise that loss. So what it sounds like is that there's a maturity mismatch, to use some jargon here. So their liabilities, their deposits, are at zero duration, basically. They might just need to be paid out at any time. Whereas their assets, these long duration treasuries, have a duration of over six years. So therefore, when interest rates go up, the liabilities side of their balance sheet doesn't move, but the assets are falling in value, right? So why didn't they hedge this risk? Because a bank can hedge interest rate risk, can't it? So you could have taken out an interest rate swap, which means you turn your fixed maturity bonds into effectively floating rate bonds, which have zero duration. And some risk departments would have done that when they saw the huge duration risk of the portfolio. Now, it should be said that banks always do maturity transformation. That's one of their roles. And typically, it's because they borrow in the kind of short-term market or via deposits, which is short-term, and then they lend in the kind of longer-term bank loan market, if you like. And in this case, they actually bought lots of treasuries. And mortgage-backed securities. And mortgage-backed securities, yeah. And that was the problem, right? They didn't think about the risk that interest rates would rise, which clearly they should have. And it's interesting you mentioned that if you hold these securities to maturity, these treasuries, these mortgage-backed securities, all is fine, right? You get your principal back when the bond matures, you can pay back your depositors, everything's good. And as I understand it, in banking, there's kind of a division between held to maturity securities. So what you're saying is, I'm not ever going to sell this stuff. It's sitting on my balance sheet, but don't worry about it if it's falling in value. I'm holding whatever happens. 
and then available for sale securities, which are constantly being marked to market. So if it's available for sale, the actual description of the losses that you make goes into a kind of appendix of your annual results. It doesn't go into the income statement, the main income statement. And of course, the assumption is that everything will be fine and that you can hold these things to maturity if you need to. But if you suddenly have a loss of deposits, then this is the kind of environment in which you might be forced to sell those treasuries. So if you are going to be hedging this stuff, you'd at least interest rate hedge the AFS, the available for sale bonds, at least some of them. So what's quite interesting is if we say, okay, why did this bank run get started? Why did everyone get spooked? It's probably because if you looked at the balance sheet and you did mark all these treasuries and mortgage-backed securities to market, if you said, what are they actually worth right now? The bank, if you'd done that, was actually insolvent at the end of last year. But of course, that's not how the balance sheet works. But even if you looked at the available for sale securities, you'd have seen the two billion-ish loss, which they had on that part of their treasury holdings. And that's what was realised. So they announced that 1.8 billion loss on March the 8th, which was Wednesday. Which, as it happens, was the same day that a whole nother bank failed, which was Silvergate <laughs> Bank, which is kind of mostly lending to the crypto sector. So everyone was kind of scared of banks anyway. One had just failed. And now Silicon Valley Bank comes out and says, hmm, we've got this loss, but actually, don't worry, guys. We're going to issue a load of new stock and plug the hole. That's what they said, wasn't it? Yeah, and dilute all of you shareholders. And guess what? The shareholders didn't like it. So the share price fell precipitously. And as we said, loads of people started trying to pull their money all at once, like $40 billion worth in a day. And yeah, the numbers mean you're bankrupt. Yeah. And a 60% equity fall as well would have eroded their capital further. So essentially it was over on March the 9th. So very rapid decline and fall. And what we then saw was everyone who banked with Silicon Valley Bank starting to panic, obviously, because... If a bank goes bankrupt and they're holding all your money, are you going to get your money back is surely the first thing you think. And this is the psychology of a bank run. You're thinking, well, you know, what's the next shoe to drop? Will my bank go down? And is my money safe? Because in the United States, there is an FDIC insurance scheme, which guarantees deposits up to the value of $250,000 per customer. You might think, okay, that's great. We're going to get our money back. But what was quite unique, really, about SVB is that 93% of the value of deposits they held were above that insurance level. So most of the money they held was not automatically insured by the FDIC. And is another reason why a bank run gets started. This is a really important point, which is if you're looking for the next shoe to drop, look at the percentage of deposits which exceed that 250k FDIC limit, because that's probably going to tell you how much fear there's going to be from the depositors. I still remember when I was living in LA with mum and dad, you know, mum was banking with Bank of America. And if you go to the bank, you'd see this kind of brass plate that would say FDIC guarantee, blah, blah, blah. We're backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. And it meant something, you know. I mean, full faith and credit up to $250,000. <laughs> well, that's pretty good. Not for you, Robin, your family's money bags. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. And this whole FDIC insurance thing was brought in really after the Great Depression when there was a huge number of bank runs across the country. And in this case, so we're saying 93% of deposits at the bank were not insured in this way. And who was it that was holding this money? Well, as we said, it was tech startups often, venture capital funds. And these kind of people often have a very prominent Twitter presence and we're immediately out there shouting, 
come on, government, guarantee all our money immediately. But I think for the US, the tech sector is so systemically important. Just look at their stock market. A quarter of it is tech companies. And if you include those consumer discretionary stocks, the monsters, which are Apple and Amazon, you can see that if those companies have problems, then it's going to have a massive impact on the US stock market. Whereas in the UK, tech is almost invisible as a percentage of our total stock market. I mean, as far as we know, none of those mega caps banked with Silicon Valley Bank. It wasn't your Apples and your Googles. But So who was it? Well, Etsy banked with them and had to suspend payments to people selling on their platform while they waited to see if they'd get their money. Roku had almost half a billion dollars with SVB. And the one which was particularly interesting, I thought, with maybe the biggest single amount on deposit was the USDC stablecoin, which had $3.3 billion there. (laughs) I just love the tweet from the CEO, which basically said, yep, it's difficult to take your money out right now because our deposits are frozen while the banks are shut. But on Monday, when the banks open, everything will be fine. Well, it's turned out that he's right. But what happened in the meantime was that the value of USDC, which should be pegged to a dollar and tracks it very closely if you look at the graph, it fell immediately to 90 cents. It lost 10% of its value. It's not really that stable. And if you plot it over time, it's very close to a dollar. That's where it should be. Just like a money market fund, it should be worth a dollar always. So it broke the buck, which is the cardinal crime for a stable coin or a money market fund. Because the way these stable coins work is they take in your cash and then they put it in the safe things. They buy short-dated treasuries, commercial paper, certificates of deposit, all that kind of stuff. And they also hold some cash, which was the problem here. So they put a chunk of their cash with Silicon Valley Bank. That cash may or may not have been there. Everyone holding USDC thought, hmm, maybe it's not going to be fully backed now. And if we look at the price of it now, it's at 99 cents. So it's almost back at $1. And that is presumably because the government has stepped in and solved the problem. Or have they? (laughs) Okay, or have they? So what have they done? What have they announced on Sunday night? So we should say that we're recording this podcast first thing on a Monday morning before markets (laughs) have opened. And so whether this is going to be of any relevance, I don't know. So firstly, there was a joint statement by the Treasury, Federal Reserve and FDIC. So all the adults got together and made a statement. They had to do this to stop the financial system melting down and flights of capital and bank runs. They had to do something, didn't they? Because, you know, we'd open markets on Monday morning, otherwise with people now thinking, huh, is my money in any bank safe? So firstly, they announced that all of the depositors would be fully protected. They also said that no losses associated with the resolution of SVB would be borne by the taxpayer. However, shareholders and certain unsecured debt holders will not be protected. Yeah, so that was an important statement, wasn't it? They said, no matter how much money you had at Silicon Valley Bank, you're going to be just fine and you can get it on Monday morning. Yep. And the second statement was from the Fed on its own. And that was the announcement of a new scheme called the Bank Term Funding Programme, BTFP, which offered loans of up to one year for banks but also savings associations, credit unions, and other eligible depository institutions. All they have to do is pledge US treasuries, agency debt, or MBS, mortgage-backed securities. They hand those over to the Fed, and that's the collateral they provide. And in return, the Fed says, look, we'll pretend these things are worth par, 100. 
So we won't look at the distressed valuations and we'll give you the cash in return as if they're worth 100. Romin, the technical term for this is bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Or pretend and extend. Because if they hold them to maturity, they would be worth 100. That's the point. I'm only half joking, though. Like, this is a major change, right, with how central banks and kind of a repo system works. To value everything at par, no matter where it actually should be valued, is kind of weird. But there had to be shock and awe. There had to be something that said, look, we're doing something spectacular, everything's safe, and your deposits are safe to stop these bank runs. Because if they didn't do this, and it wasn't a shock and awe announcement, then you'd have more bank runs. And we've already had news stories today of other banks which are seeing deposit flight. So this scheme basically allows any bank to go to the Fed and say, here's my highly devalued treasuries or mortgage-backed securities, whatever. Just give me what I paid for them, at least in the short term, and I can therefore keep my customers happy. And what was this called? BTFP, this scheme? Like, I'm really annoyed that the Fed couldn't find a way to make that P a D. It should have been a better anagram. (laughs) BTFD. (laughs) Oh, that's great. But the value of the assets which they went for wasn't even what the banks paid for it. It was par. You know, it was 100. So that's, that's pretty shocking. So you say it's a big bazooka now. And, you know, the adults have stepped in, the Fed, the Treasury, the FDIC. Does that mean other banks are fine now? Or are we going to see some more bank runs? I think what people are doing is saying, well, what was the recipe that made SVB go down? And are there other similar banks? One part of that recipe is how much unrealized loss there is on the balance sheet of the banks. Whether you think that's the right answer or not, the right metric or not, that's what people are doing. And Morningstar helpfully made a kind of hit list, if you like, to make people worry, if anything which lists those unrealized losses as a percentage of tangible equity. Now, who's on that list? First Republic Bank is the first one on the list. They had a severe fall on March the 9th of about 29%. It's now down about 60% in pre-market trading as we record this. But there are other banks which have even larger percentage losses as a percentage of their tangible equity. For example, Truist Financial, 65% unrealized losses. Bancorp, 55%. Bank of America, 54%. And interestingly, the FDIC at the end of 2022 reported that if you totaled up the unrealized losses on securities held by banks, there's almost $700 billion worth of them. But not a problem. If you don't have to realize the losses, you just hand them over to the Fed. Oh, they're worth 100 with their magic wand, priced at par. Have some cash. And there you go. So literally, the problem's been magicked away, and the Fed's allowing these banks to use its balance sheet to take the risk. Okay, here's my question. I often think that policy that's developed in a rush in response to a crisis can be a bit dodgy and have unforeseen consequences. What are the risks here? Because if the Fed's stepping in and doing something it's never done before, it has to have effects. But look, the Fed will have war-gamed this scenario or scenarios like it already. This is what they do. They kind of plan for these terrible crises. And something like this, a bank crisis, is just bread and butter for them. You can bet there'll be some big shelf at the Treasury, a lever arch file, which says, if this happens, do that. This would have been thought through. Okay, but it does change the dynamics of the Treasury market a little bit. So there's an interesting tweet from Mike Bird, who works at The Economist. 
And he said that there's fascinating dimensions here for international buyers of sovereign debt. The choice between a long US Treasury and a gilt or bund yesterday was what they offered in terms of return, currency risk, and potential hedging costs. Like that was what you were weighing up as an investor. But if you expect this new Fed facility to persist, or even just to be resurrected during future crisis, then a long US Treasury has just become very different. It's now a fixed income product paired with a sort of duration insurance product pegged to its par rather than face value. And you might say, oh, well, that's fine. Most people can't access this facility. It's just banks. But of course, banks can buy your treasuries off you. So kind of like a treasury is now quite different from debt issued by other governments, potentially. But look, is the bride too beautiful? You know, you've got something which is risk-free, offering you an even risker-free yield. So the problem is if you've got other sovereign debt, which doesn't come with a similar guarantee, or like gilts or like bunds in Europe, suddenly it kind of reduces their effective risk-freeness. So I think that's the difference now between what you get with treasuries and what you get with other sovereign debt. And just to walk through some of the other potential unintended consequences here, it seems to me that implicitly the FDIC has just said that bank deposits in America have unlimited insurance now. And I know technically it just applies to these banks which have just gone bankrupt. But if another bank goes bankrupt next week, are they not going to do the same thing? Everyone's going to assume they're going to do the same thing. So does that create any moral hazard risks? Well, that's the problem, I think, one of the problems. And it'll be really interesting to see whether the default rate in other banks will pick up, particularly for these regional banks. If it's a loss on treasuries, that won't be the cause of the bankruptcy. If it's just a run on the bank, then will they be allowed to go to the wall? If it's a poorly managed bank and it's got nothing to do with a loss on their treasuries, my guess is that they'd still be allowed to fail. So we'll just have to see how the regulators treat this. But in terms of a customer who's making a deposit, if I have a huge amount of money, I'm an ultra high worth individual or I'm a business, I potentially no longer have to think about counterparty risk, right, when it comes to bank. Now, you might say customers are not in a position to do that anyway. They can't easily look at a bank balance sheet and weigh up, are they safe enough for me to go way above that deposit insurance limit? But if there's now no deposit insurance limit, You can just bung it all in whatever bank you want, right? Whoever's offering you the best interest rate, who cares about risk, put it anywhere. Certainly for systemically important banks, you know, they probably are the kind of core of the banking system. And so they're probably the safest. And what I think might happen is people will be much more likely to put their deposits with the systemically important banks now, just in case. I think that would have been the case if they hadn't done this unlimited guarantee. But now there's no incentive to do that, right? Well, there is an incentive, I think, which is this distinction. If it's a loss due to the treasuries losing value, then you're covered. So that list from Morningstar isn't as meaningful anymore. But if it's just a dodgy bank which doesn't do its risk management properly, then yeah, there's still a risk. But would the US government ever really make depositors face a haircut and not make them whole? in the event of a bank failure. I don't think they would. Then that's the precedent we've set here. But I think the order of precedence is a good one. You know, you value the depositors above the investors. Investors know they're taking a risk when they buy into the capital structure of a bank, whether that's its stock, whether it's its bonds or its preferred shares or whatever part of the capital structure you buy, you know that comes with a risk. So I think one of the consequences for this, which is important from investors' point of view, is that if you know these bail-ins can happen, 
you should be compensated with extra return. And that's because you could get converted into, you know, the bag holder when one of these things goes wrong. Yeah, that's what's interesting to me, because before this stuff happened yesterday, in theory, bondholders, like the people who hold the bank's debt and depositors, were both unsecured creditors of the bank to be treated equally, right, in liquidation proceedings. But now it's clear that bondholders are subordinate to depositors, like depositors come first. Now, I think that's right, but that wasn't like officially the position before this. And I think there'll be a big distinction between secured bonds, where the bank takes some of its assets and says, look, if things go wrong, we'll sell these assets and make you whole. And unsecured bonds, which a lot of the debt is unsecured. You know, you'll see senior unsecured when you look at the actual description of the bond. That'll be worth a lot less, or at least it'll have to carry a much higher coupon to make people want to buy it. So there will be differences in terms of pricing of risk as a result of this. There's no question about that. And I think it'll mean that banks will become less profitable because if their cost of capital is higher, which it probably will be now, that's going to reduce their net interest margin and ultimately reduce their returns. And what's interesting about the FDIC deposit insurance scheme, the way that's funded is through a levy on banks, right? It's not actually taxpayer money. If they're now talking about bigger protections for depositors, Again, maybe that means higher levies on all the other banks, which tends to get passed on to the customers, right? Yeah, or it makes the bank less profitable. You know, either way, it's not good. One other question that seems to be asked a lot now is, was the regulator at fault here or the way that regulation was drafted to allow this bank to fail? It's funny because SVB was just on the cusp of going up a notch in terms of its regulation because it had just enough in deposits. It was just getting to the point where it would have had more stringent stress tests. Now, I don't know whether those stress tests would have included things like you've got a highly concentrated sector exposure for your deposits. I don't know if that was on the radar for the Fed. It will be now. (laughs) I'm almost sure. Well, we always fight the last crisis, don't we? That's right. So this probably won't happen again in the same way. What I read was that The regulation was designed to fight the 2008 crisis, right? So stress tests were clearly designed to look for scenarios where there was bad credit, like subprime loans. But there weren't so many tests for what happens to banks if interest rates just rise at the fastest pace we've seen in decades. And the same is true of the UK, where we had that huge problem with LDI, liability-driven investing, which was another live stream I had to do. So, you know... (laughs) If anything, please solve these problems because I don't want to do more live streams on Sunday evening. And all of these are financial problems of our own creation. They're kind of imaginary financy stuff. They're not real crises in the sense that there's a huge natural disaster or some kind of disease which wipes out a large proportion of the population. You know, I think all of these are kind of self-created problems. Like money itself. And in terms of systemic risk here... It was clear that before this all happened, Silicon Valley Bank was not classed as a systemically important bank and therefore had lower levels of regulation. And now after its demise, it kind of has been classed as a systemically important bank, purely for the reason that they wouldn't have been allowed to do this big Fed Treasury FDIC rescue package without saying, yep, this is systemically important. I thought this was a bit like the Victoria Cross. You know, it's a medal that you can award posthumously. Congratulations, you lost the game, but look, now we recognise you. You were important after all. Yeah. (laughs) So ticking that box to say it's systemically important was kind of a bureaucratic thing. 
But are there any genuine risks of contagion here, either to the wider financial system in the US or around the world? Often we see when banks fall, the authorities come out with these big schemes. Everyone says, okay, they've saved the day. But have they saved the day? I think there are international problems. And there was a beautiful thread from Brad Setzer on Twitter, which talked about the liabilities of Asian banks and insurers, which also hold a lot of US treasuries. So for example, Japan's insurers, he says, have about 700 billion in foreign bonds. I bet treasuries are going to make a big chunk of that. Taiwan's insurers have a comparable sum. So remember that this isn't a problem until it is a problem. It's only if they have to suddenly sell those bonds. At a loss. At a loss, before maturity, that it's a problem. So if they somehow have to recapitalize, then yeah, it's going to be a problem. Or if there are big claims, if you're an insurer, and you have to sell some of your assets. So let's say there is a natural disaster, which is something we just mentioned. In Japan, nothing ever goes wrong in Japan. (laughs) (laughs) You know, another tidal wave, right? Another Fukushima or something like that. So if that happens, if there is a natural disaster with big payouts, then these insurers are going to have to realize the loss. Because that's the game at the moment, isn't it? We know interest rates have risen. That causes assets to fall in value, including safe assets like treasuries. Now everyone's just scouring the world's balance sheets like, who's holding all these depressed assets? And as Brad says, it's important to understand where the risk's being warehoused right now. And US dollar-denominated fixed income is where it's at. So steer clear of Asian banks or just cross your fingers and hope for the best? Because the reason they're holding so many of these treasuries and foreign securities is that they had loads of excess money, right, over the last decade and were putting it offshore because Japan had really low interest rates. Yeah, and it's FX hedge, so there's a currency hedge in place to avoid that risk of the dollar weakening versus the yen, say. But they don't have, I don't believe, interest rate hedges in place. Maybe that'll start to happen now. But even if you do that, someone's got to take the interest rate risk on your behalf somewhere, right? Yeah, you don't destroy risk, you just trade it. Just shuffle it to like the last bag holder standing. (laughs) (laughs) But it can be shared, right? So you can share it amongst investment banks. So It's all going to end up on the Fed's balance sheet eventually, (laughs) (laughs) wherever you put it. So to come back to the Fed, I guess the big macro question now is, people were saying at the start of this hiking cycle, the Fed will hike rates until something breaks. Things have started breaking. Is this a big enough break to make them think twice about raising interest rates further? Or are we just plowing on regardless because inflation's still high? So looking at what markets are pricing in right now, they're expecting in March we're going to get a 25 basis point hike. Previously that had increased to 50 basis points. Now that's come back down. Presumably people now think, well, the Fed's not going to be hiking if we've got this banking crisis going on. Hiking while bailing out banks is an unusual situation to be in. Well, as Jerome always says, he's got lots of tools in his toolbox. So what have we got? We've got his balance sheet, very large balance sheet, which they were shrinking till recently with QT, quantitative tightening. That's what they've given essentially to the banks. What they've also got is interest rates. So what I expect will happen is they'll probably separate their monetary policy tool use, if you like. And with inflation so high, they can't really be seen to take their foot off the brake. Because there's a real problem here, which is the US employment market is red hot. They can't ignore that fact. They've somehow got to get demand and supply for jobs back in balance. But this has always been the risk at the back of everyone's minds, is that something significant breaks, 
which necessitates a slowdown in monetary policy prematurely before inflation is under control. And that is the kind of thing that could keep inflation high. Like if something really bad came out of this, there was big contagion, major banks got into trouble or whatever it might be, then that is the kind of thing that could cause them to sort of think twice. Yeah, I think it'll definitely have an effect on their rate policy. They will be less aggressive than they would have been, probably. But I still think they've got this massive macroeconomic problem, which is inflation, which they've just got to deal with. They can't ignore it. That's problem number one, isn't it? At the top of a central bank's list. Exactly. Because this affects everybody. Everyone from your cleaners to your CEOs will all be affected by inflation. Whereas this fallout from a bank will affect certain people who've got deposits with that bank or other affected banks. But it's nowhere near as large in terms of impact as inflation. So long as we don't get a widespread bank run, which is what they've tried to prevent now. Yeah. Now, for members of Pensioncraft who are worried about this crisis with SVB and the banking fallout, there's been a list that I've been compiling which explains what's going on. Now, if you want to have access and discuss these problems as they happen in real time, why not join our membership? To learn more about that, go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week. What is the difference between a bailout and a bail-in? Well, as we said, capitalism kind of doesn't like the solution that happened in 2008, which was if a bank fails, it's the taxpayers who are on the, on the hook for it. Or maybe capitalism would like that because it's not going to be the shareholders who take the fall. Well, capitalist theory doesn't like that, but capitalists like that. Is that the distinction? Yeah, I think that is the distinction. And let's just look at HM Treasury's definition, because there was a change in the banking rules that came out of the banking crisis. So this is how HM Treasury describes it. Bail-in involves shareholders of a failing institution being divested of their shares. That means you lose everything. And creditors of the institution, which is the bondholders, having their claims cancelled or reduced to the extent necessary to restore the institution to financial viability. That means the bondholders lose some proportion of their holdings. Which people typically call a haircut. A haircut. However much of a haircut's required to get the bank back on its feet. So as I understand it, what happened in 2008 was that the banks got into trouble and were on the verge of bankruptcy. The federal government stepped in with a bailout which saved all the bondholders. There were no haircuts for bondholders. And equity holders were diluted to some extent, depending on the bank. So you didn't lose everything. Yeah. And taxpayers were on the hook. Yep, which is clearly not so good from the point of view of the taxpayers. So how does that differ to what's going on now then? Well, I think the HMRC thing, again, puts it really well. It helps to ensure that shareholders and creditors of the failed institution, rather than the taxpayer, meet the cost of the failure but also to ensure that the failed institution can continue to operate and provide essential services to its customers by recapitalizing so that it addresses the cause of the failure. And of course, ultimately, it's favoring the depositors over the investors of the bank. Now, the investors are not happy, okay? So <laughs> these bailing rules are not popular with people who invest in banks, of course not. And my favourite story about this was the bail-in that happened in 2012 and 2013 in the Republic of Cyprus, where the Archbishop of Cyprus stepped in and said what he thought about it. And he said, we've seen mistakes piled upon mistakes, 
and illegalities on top of illegalities during the bank's restructuring. All Bank of Cyprus shareholders, old and new, are called on to vote against the planned capital increase unless the bank agrees to restore the old shareholders along the lines of our proposals, said the Archbishop. (laughs) You don't expect a bishop to be negotiating the terms of a bailout of a bank. But he was apparently a bit of a capitalist himself. Okay, so is what's happening now with Silicon Valley Bank a bailout or a bail-in? Well, if you're a shareholder of Silicon Valley Bank, it feels very much like a bail-in. You've lost everything. And the bondholders too? That I don't know. I guess it depends on how much they realise by liquidating the assets of the bank. If it's a secured bond, then as I say, you know, you've got assets set aside to make you whole. If it's unsecured, I expect the losses will be considerable. So that feels very much like a bail-in to me. I don't know how people would justify the opposite. Well, it's interesting because a lot of people I respect and listen to on finance kind of disagree about whether this is a bailout. So Noah Smith, the economist who I like to read, he says, this is not a bailout at all. It's not taxpayer funded. It doesn't mean SVB will continue to exist and SVB's management will be looking for a new job. Whereas in reply to that tweet, Joe Weisenhall, who hosts the Odd Lots podcast, which I also love, he said, I disagree. It is a bailout. Taxpayer funded is a canard. And also, Treasury is putting up $25 billion to backstop the creation of the new bank term funding programme. So if fiscal authority is the determinant, then it still applies here. Whose side are you on? I think I'm on the side of being pragmatic. And I think, what do you do when this happens? Because it will happen. You know, if it isn't this, it'll be something else which causes a crisis. And the question is, do you want to just say, just let it happen, let it go? That's kind of what happened to Lehman, though, right? They did let it go. And we saw the consequences and the massively negative (laughs) consequences. So I think just letting that happen, you know, 1929 as well, you could say that a lot of the problem was caused because they didn't step in. They relied on people like JP Morgan to step in and try and solve the problem. So I think on the side of pragmatism, you've got to do something. And the purpose of the Fed is to be the lender of last resort. So all the toxic stuff ultimately flows to the Fed to fix. What they've got to do is try and avoid moral hazard. And I think that's an interesting question because moral hazard's still there in a way. Now, if you're the manager of a bank, would you still be worried about your bank going bust and losing your job? Yeah, you would. So I think in that sense, they'll still have to be careful about risk management. But I think deregulating banks, which is what some people are talking about recently, which has happened recently, is not a good idea. It usually leads to this kind of crisis. I mean, interestingly here with Silicon Valley Bank, changes to the regulations in the Trump era meant that they were no longer being assessed against the full stress test criteria, like they came under the threshold in terms of assets. And this is usually the case, which is if you do step back on regulation, it sounds kind of cool and capitalist, but ultimately it causes more problems down the road. So I think that's something that people should take as one of the messages and one of the learnings from this episode. I mean, it all kind of gets to the core of what is a bank, which we've discussed before. And I would say it is actually a kind of quasi-public entity in a way, because the institutions of the state, the central bank, the treasury department, kind of stand behind every bank and should be saying what it can and can't do. Like they're almost agents of the state in a way, just one step removed. Because if you do money stuff, well, all money stuff is ultimately government stuff, because that's what they do, right? They make the money. You pay your taxes with that money and they control it. 
But some people do just hate the sniff of a bailout, right? Anything where the government comes in and rescues a private institution. And interestingly, some of the most vociferous anti-bailout people are VC tech investors on the West Coast of America. And now they're often libertarian and say they shouldn't get involved, the government here. The government's always making things worse. And not my position, but fair enough if you believe that. But then when this happened to their (laughs) bank, they very, very, very much wanted a bailout, is all I'll say. I don't know what you call that. Pragmatic libertarianism. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't really expect anyone's positions to be consistent when billions of dollars are on the line. Particularly their own money. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.